Why do we exist? Were we created with a purpose? Or are we just here by chance? What are we to believe about life, faith, and worldview? Welcome to The Universe Next Door, focusing on answers to the questions we all consider. The Universe Next Door is supported by the C.S. Lewis Society, Trinity College of Florida, and supported by gifts from listeners just like you. Discover more resources and continue the conversation at apologetics.org. And now, your host, the research professor of Bible and theology at Trinity College of Florida, author and speaker, Dr. Tom Woodward. Welcome to The Universe Next Door, and thank you for being here with us today. Uh, We have a very exciting guest today. Some of you see him on the video here, but if you're listening to a podcast or radio program, I'll go ahead and introduce him. He has been a very large influence on the C.S. Lewis Society. Uh, He has some very wonderful books, Darwin's Black Box, Darwin Devolves, and his newest work, uh, A Mousetrap for Darwin, which is a response to his critics. He is the professor of biochemistry at Lehigh University uh, in Pennsylvania, and that is Michael Behe. How are you doing today? Yes, great. It's it's wonderful to be with you. Absolutely, And, and, and we're glad to be with you as well. I mean, this is an awesome opportunity for us. We've been looking forward to. Dr. Woodward, how are you? Well, do you see my smile? I think uh, I, when I have uh, Dr. Behe with us, uh, my smile takes on, uh, you know, kind of like a, an angelic proportion because I'm, I'm glowing because it's going to be a great, great time. So yeah. we have, I'm um, holding up uh, again, if you're watching the actual uh, video capture of this podcast radio show, the amazing book. And I just think that's the word for it. It's phenomenal. Uh, Michael Denton has uh, described it in rare terms as the, perhaps the most comprehensive and incisive critique of neo-Darwinism currently in print. And it just came into print. So that means it beats every uh, potential uh, you know, competition hands down. Mousetrap for Darwin is the accumulated scholarship replying to his naysayers, to his critics, those who would pop his balloon by this very important um, addition to the um, stable of those who've been critiquing Darwin since the early days of Darwin himself, the, the scholarship of those who have been pointing out flaws and shortcomings in the evidential foundations of Darwinism goes back to even the late 1800s when was, uh, there was a number of scientists who weighed in and pointed out problems with his theory. And so uh, without taking any more time away from our guests uh, today, Dr. Behe, thank you for joining us. I hope you're enjoying the beginning of a great Christmas season. Yes, I, I certainly am. And, it, and it's great to be with you. Looking forward to the conversation. Well, I mean, right there in, in the book, we have these, what I would call delightfully short chapters. I mean, my students sometimes moan and groan when I give them a 20 or 30 page yeah. chapter. Your chapters are bite-sized. Well, I mean, the, it's like a, a smorgasbord. It's like the <laughs> ultimate uh, array of hors d'oeuvres ready for, served up for yeah. a wonderful uh, lunch or dinner. Tell us about some of the, the, the creative juices that were flowing as you penned these replies to your critics through the years. I mean, there must be a, some of them that kind of stand out as like, wow, I'll never forget that zinger, and I had far too much fun replying, or something like that. Yeah, well, uh, let's see. Uh, yeah, so most of these are counterpunches. This is not one long sustained argument like the uh, my other three books are. So. These are written in response to, um, to criticisms of the ideas of Darwin's Black Box and, and my other two books as well. 
let's see. Uh, there's there's a lot of different <laughs> a lot of different um, uh, topics in there. Uh, well, let, let me just let me let me let me go ahead and and, and propose that uh, there there have been some who've who attacked your your work on blood clotting. If I can just jump in on that one. Some people said that you didn't understand blood clotting. There is no problem with blood clotting. And I think that gave you far too much fun replying to some of those attackers on the blood clotting front. Yeah, yes, yeah, that, that brings to mind a particular um, response to blood clotting. I, I wrote about it in Darwin's Black Box and turns out that even a process that seems so simple as you, know, you cut your finger and it bleeds a little bit, slows down and stops, you know, it doesn't seem like a big deal. But uh, scientific research has shown that there are dozens of different factors that are necessary for the blood to clot properly at the right time in the right place. And that's crucial because if it clots at the wrong time in the wrong place, you're in a heap of trouble. You could have a heart attack or stroke or something like that. Uh, and a couple months after uh, my book came out in which I discussed that, a man named Russell Doolittle wrote a, an essay saying that I was wrong. And it turns out that wasn't good for me because Russell Doolittle was a prominent scientist. He's a member of the National Academy of Sciences, professor of biochemistry at the University of California, San Diego, and a, uh, and a researcher of the blood clotting system for you know, 40 years. So he's not the kind of guy that you want, you know, telling you that you're wrong on the blood clotting system. And uh, in order to kind of drive home the fact that he thought I was wrong, he pointed to a research paper that had come out relatively recently uh, when he was writing back in the 90s uh, about a research group in Ohio at Case Western Reserve that knocked out, that is destroyed, the genes for components of the blood clotting system in mice. In one strain of mice, they knocked out the gene for something called plasminogen. And in another, and in, I should say a plasminogen is a component of the system that removes blood clots once their job is done. It cuts them up and, and drags them away. And they also uh, knocked out the gene for fibrinogen. And fibrinogen is kind of the precursor of the uh, blood clot material itself. It's kind of like a, a rope structure. And when, it, uh, when it's activated, it kind of binds to itself and makes something like a fisherman's net. It's really cool mm -hmm. and traps red blood cells. And uh, when they knocked out those genes individually, that is in one group of mice knocked out plasminogen. Uh, they had some problems. Um, and if they knocked out the fibrinogen in a second group of mice, they had problems. But then they bred the mice together to get a strain that had both genes knocked out. And Russell Doolittle said that they were normal, that, that they were okay. So he said this showed that you don't have to have the full complement of components in the blood clotting apparatus. So it's not irreducibly complex, he says. And he didn't try to say how it might have arisen, even if that were the case. 
but we don't have to really worry about that too much because it turns out that he was mistaken. He misread the paper in which uh, those experiments were reported. And it turns out that the mice missing both genes have the same problems as mice uh, missing fibrinogen. That mm -hmm. is, it's the, it's the precursor of the blood clot material itself. So the mice can't form clots. Uh, they hemorrhage. Uh, female mice die during pregnancy. You know, they're not promising evolutionary intermediates. And uh, he got confused because in the paper, the authors said that um, mice missing fibrinogen are rescued from the problems of plasminogen deficiency. And Russell Doolittle read that and he thought they were okay, but it turns out they're not. Uh, plasminogen deficiency, uh, yeah, as I said earlier, plasminogen uh, removes clots once they're formed. And if you can't do that, then the clots accumulate in your body and your bloodstream gets clogged up and, and there's, there's big problems. But if you knock out fibrinogen, which is the clotting material itself, you can't form clots. And so your blood does not get clogged up by the clots. That's because you can't form clots in the first place. Wow. So you are rescued from plasminogen deficiency, but only to suffer the problems of fibrinogen deficiency. So and, uh, and the bottom line, bottom line is that in neither of them does the blood clotting cascade work. Uh, so it's irreducibly complex, just like I argue. That's fantastic. And so in other words, the uh, plasminogen is like the garbage collector who takes away the, the, the husks of, let's say, the, uh, the bananas you ate. But if you don't have the fibrinogen, you don't have no bananas to begin with, so you're going to die before the garbage collector comes. So something like that. Yeah, I know. And let me let me just emphasize that the guy writing this criticism was perhaps the premier researcher on the blood clotting cascade in the entire world. And if he doesn't know how Darwinian processes could put together something like the blood clotting cascade, then nobody knows. Nobody yes. at all. And, and isn't there a bit of a kind of a um, second round to that? Didn't our, our friend Michael Ruse then use that review and that kind of like duplicate the, the mutation or duplicate the biologist error in that? Yeah, exactly. You know, uh, uh, in case some listeners don't know, there's a guy named Michael Ruse who's down in Florida now. I think he's at Florida State yeah. uh, Department of Philosophy. He's a philosopher of science and a and in particular of Darwin's thought. Mm -hmm. And he wrote a, an essay about a year or so after Russell Doolittle, in which he explained to readers of Skeptic magazine mm -hmm. uh, why this intelligent design stuff is all hokum. Mm -hmm. And he says why, you know, there's, uh, there's no reason to think that uh, systems such as the blood clotting cascade are irreducibly complex. Why, you know, Russell Doolittle has been working on this for a long time and, 
And he said that if you remove two components of, of the blood clotting cascade, it, it's, it's okay. So he repeated word for word the uh, argument of Russell Doolittle. Not only that, but in Russell Doolittle's essay, he had a typo that instead of plasminogen being spelled as it is, he, he uh, didn't type the S in. So it was plaminogen. So it was a typo. But in Michael Roos's essay, he copied the misspelling, plaminogen. So, <laughs> so uh, the point is, he wasn't thinking for himself. He was just taking Russell Doolittle's word yeah. for it. And he had nasty things to say. He said, I was, you know, I was a bad guy because I was bringing up this argument. And that little feature kind of revealed that he had made up his mind based not on the science, but on other things. Well, we have with us today, Dr. Michael Behe. He has uh, been one of the um, leading uh, theorists and, and also um, experimentally in his own uh, work as a bio, biochemist, studying the actual molecules of biology and the molecular systems, the motors that are uh, doing their job every day, every hour in our bodies. Uh, he has brought these to light and pointed out a major, major problem with Darwinian theory that has never really been fully addressed. Uh, and the amazing thing about this book, Dr. Behe, is that you replied, I mean, um, the book is, is, you really get your money's worth. This is one of the best, if I can do a plug, I am going to give this to about, oh, I don't know, five to at least five people in particular who would love to just devour every page in here. Uh, and, and I think it's, and it's very affordable. It's got 109 short uh, hors d'oeuvre, you know, call them, uh, you know, like uh, taste testers. You, well, you get to be a taste tester of Michael Behe and you get to sample all of your wonderful plates that you've whipped up through the years, including some recent ones uh, in relation to your, your book, D you know, Darwin Devolves. Tell us about your newer uh, approach to this question. We've got just a few more minutes left in our, in our program here. Then we, by the way, if you would join us again next week, next week's program, would that be okay? Sure, I'd be delighted to do that. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. This is, uh, we got a lot more to discuss, but you developed a new approach, a new kind of in insight. It's not so much yours, but you've, you've gleaned it from the literature. Darwin Devolves has an amazing and a, a shocking thesis. Would you bring out in a nutshell what Darwin Devolves as basically what it says? And then I think you've actually have some of your replies to critics of that book. Yeah. In there. Yeah, that's right. It's, it's up, to, up to speed there, the, the book. Uh, yeah, and Darwin Devolves, in a nutshell, I show that recent scientific work has shown that Darwin's mechanism does work. That is, that some mutations do help species, and natural selection does kind of spread them throughout, throughout the species. But uh, by the most part, the large majority of those helpful mutations are ones that actually break genes that were already there. That is, they degrade uh, the genetic information. They decrease the genetic information. Sometimes that helps. Some people say, you know, how can it help to break something? Well, suppose you had a nice car, a uh, sports car or something like that, and uh, 
for some reason, in some situation, your life depended on your car getting somewhat better gas mileage than it did, a bit better mileage. So what could you quickly do to you know, have your car uh, get better gas mileage? Well, one thing you could do is take off the hood and throw it away, take off the doors and throw them away. You know, get rid of excess weight. Of course, hoods and doors are useful in many circumstances. But if right now your life depended on get, uh, getting better gas mileage, then the thing to do is just toss those things out. And I discuss a number of instances where that's the case in life. It turns out that this is new, you know, only seen in the past decade or two, simply because scientists uh, have just developed the equipment to look at the molecular level of life in sufficient detail to track down the mutations uh, that are helpful. Uh, remember that uh, mutation is a molecular change, a change in the sequence of DNA. So in order to see what's really going on in Darwinian evolution, you have to be able to look at that level and follow it uh, for a while. And that was for all practical purposes impossible until you know, the year 2000 and later. And uh, I start off the book with a discussion of polar bears versus grizzly bears. And it turns out that scientists have, they've determined the complete sequence of uh, the DNA of both polar bear and grizzly bear from which the polar bear is supposed to have descended. And they saw that the top 17 mutations of those top 17 mutations, about three quarters of them degrade or break the genes in which they occur. And the most prominent one is the one that turns the polar bear white. Turns out that the brown bear makes pigment that uh, is, uh, turns its fur brown. So if you break a gene involved in that pigmentation process, then you've got white fur. And in some circumstances, like the Arctic, that might help. And that's interesting and it's important, but a process like that is not one that is going to build a gene or a molecular machine in the first place. Wow, that is an amazing uh, you know, step forward in the critique of Darwin. And I appreciate so much your joining us. We have with us Dr. Michael Behe. He is a senior biochemist, uh, been on the faculty at Lehigh University for what, close to about 30 years, something like that? 35, yeah. Wow, okay. <laughs> Time flies. <laughs> that, that, I've been uh, you know, working in this area of apologetics and, and the, the design theory for about 35 years. So I think we need to throw a party here and yeah, celebrate absolutely. what's happening yeah. around us. I feel underqualified. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're invited, Nick, as well, of all, all, all of our listeners. So I um, just want to, again, just uh, stress what a bombshell and a breakthrough this book is. It's a mousetrap for Darwin. And what Dr. Michael Behe is going to be, uh, we can't cover all the topics and ask all the questions we'd like to just in one program. So he's agreed to be with us for next week's program. But this is a great stocking stuffer. Now, not might not fit in the stocking. So you can wrap something, some, some wonderful 
you know, alligator or maybe some dinosaur uh, paper, you know, wrapping paper around it. I put it under the tree for uh, your local teenager college student or somebody who just loves to learn about the critique of uh, the Darwinian theory, which is really, you know, a hundred, almost 200 years old. We're getting closer and closer to, uh, you know, that point where, you know, in about 40 years, we'll be doing the 200th anniversary. And at that point, we'll maybe be a, a blip in the history books. But um, yeah. uh, I, I just wanted to just say we, we've just got a few minutes left here in this uh, particular program. Uh, Nick Shauna, I don't know if you have a question uh, up your sleeve, anything about the, the work of Behe uh, in, in any of his three books or this new book, A Mousetrap for Darwin, anything that you would like to ask? Yes, I do. I definitely have a couple more for, for next week's program. But um, the first thing I noticed is that it's a very big book for a critique. So obviously you put you put a lot of thought into that. And my question for our listeners uh, is what what do you want someone who maybe has read Darwin's Black Box, uh, maybe who isn't super uh, knowledgeable in the area of intelligent design or, or biochemistry, what do you hope that they would get out of this book? Well, uh, simply that the questions which many Darwinists say are closed are not. That the, that the objections they raise to my arguments uh, have big holes in them, big problems with them. Uh, and the biggest problem that I have, that intelligent design has, I think, is that it's just unacceptable to too many people in the scientific community. And they say, oh, it's, it's wrong, they pronounce it wrong, and, and uh, nobody should think about it. But it turns out they haven't addressed the arguments. If they do, you know, I'd, I'd be fine with that. But they don't. They ignore them. They, they run away from them. And so I want to show the general public that these questions are still very much open and that Darwin's theory is a whole lot less uh, robust than people thought. Wow. I think that's an amazing way to, to end our, our work uh, when, and just diving in. Our, it's not work, it's pleasure. Let me amend my, my, my verbiage here. The total Absolutely. joy and awesome <laughs> pleasure of diving into yeah. this amazing book, A Mousetrap for Darwin. Uh, we're going to be featuring this book on our website. We're going to be talking about it in upcoming uh, uh, Did You Know series on our Facebook and apologetics.org. And it's a privilege to have known and work, been able to work with Dr. Behe. We've had some fun. It's been kind of a wild Absolutely, ride. Absolutely, yeah. So, right. We've known each other for, what, 27, 28 years, something exactly. like that. Exactly. I think I picked you up at the airport for the Darwin Symposium yeah. in 1992. That's right. February. Yeah, so, that's right. You know, yeah. time, time for another party here. But uh, the achievement that you've made uh, in the Edge of Evolution after you produced, of course, Darwin's Black Box, the Edge of Evolution, then Darwin Devolves, that trilogy has been an awesome um, just foundation stone for all of us to, to understand what's happening at the molecular level in these machines. We'll uh, look forward to having you back here on this uh, incredible second part with Dr. Michael Vihi next week. Nick? Thank you so much for being here. Uh, we really enjoyed this, and I'm, I'm sure our listeners have too. Make sure you check out A Mousetrap for Darwin. Go and order it. Order it for somebody else um, who you care about. And I just can't wait to see where this goes. We continue to fight against Darwinism. We continue to seek the truth and show people that not only are there arguments, but there are good arguments for design, uh, and they are not going anywhere. So 
thank you for being here. Make sure you come back next week and check out our next part of this interview. And we'll see you back here next week on The Universe Next Door. Welcome to the world of scientific discovery. I'm Jim Huta, and it's been my privilege to practice as a perinatal cardiologist for over 35 years, looking at the fetal heart as it develops in utero before the baby is born. We now know that the fetal heart development is controlled by DNA, but more importantly, there's a whole new code in a new area called epigenetics. Methyl tags, which are the signals or control molecules for the development of the fetal heart. Also, check out the dynamic colored DNA model. This is the only existing model that includes the DNA methylation molecules. You'll see methylation tags which attach to various portions of the DNA in order to control how it does its job. In our website, we hope to expose you to new advances in this area of epigenetics in our epigenetics section. Come and join us today at DNA and Beyond. Join us again next time as we continue to seek the truth about life, faith, and worldview in the universe next door.